It's interesting about the prayer before we even get into it. Um, the words that Jonah uses. It's really interesting. It's when he is squeezed, something comes out of him. And it's this prayer. But that prayer was put into Jonah at some point. I'm going to argue for that here in just a second. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, Let's say you're broke and you need cash quickly for something. You go to the ATM. You go to withdraw some cash. You will only get cash out of your account if cash has been deposited into your account. You understand how this basically works now, right? Mom and dad need cash. And they put money into the account. You withdraw the money, but only if money is in the account. Or, to put it another way, you have a test coming up. A lot of times, if, if any of you, I don't know if you like this response or not, but if any of you ever ask me, hey, would you pray for me? I've got a big test coming up. I will pray for you if you ask me to do that, um, if I remember to. And often what I'll say is I'll pray for good recall. And the reason I say that is because we need to put something in in order for it to come out unless God intervenes by miraculous ways, like with you know a rescue from a fish or something. And it just comes out anyway if you didn't put it in there. But good recall is this idea that we have, you've studied, right? And you're putting something in and that's what you want to come out on the paper when you take the test or whatever. Okay, what is it that comes out of Jonah? It's this prayer. But it was a prayer that was put into him. Eugene Peterson's a guy that I quoted last week. Um, It was his eulogy story. But in his commentary on Jonah, he said this such an interesting quote. He said that Jonah prayed is not remarkable. We commonly pray when we're in desperate circumstances. But there is something very remarkable about the way in which Jonah prayed. He prayed a set prayer. Eugene Peterson said Jonah's prayer is not spontaneously original self-expression. It is totally derivative. He says Jonah had been to school to pray, and his school was the book of Psalms. So we're going to get into this prayer in a second, but what I want you to see, and one will jump off the page because Hudson read it earlier. Every single line of this prayer is from a psalm. Isn't that interesting? There's nothing original here. No original content. And I want to just apply that from the very beginning before we get into the text. There's going to be a lot of application tonight. And the first point of application is that we sometimes, I think, mistakenly think that spontaneous prayers are the most spiritual of prayers, right? If you're called on to pray, it's got to be something you just come up with in the spot. And if you sound really flowery or whatever, then great. You're really spiritual. That person really gets it. But throughout the centuries, throughout church history, some of the richest prayers you could ever find are right here in the Psalms. This is the ancient book of prayers. And a real application for you tonight, if you struggle in your prayer life or you want to have a richer prayer life at all, or you struggle to know what even to pray, open the book of Psalms. Man, they are rich. Rich with identifying emotions of exactly what you're going through. Pray them line by line. Make them your own prayers. That's part of what they're intended for. So I think that's application right off the bat. He quotes from Psalm 42, Psalm 69, Psalm 3. There are hints of Psalm 5, 18, 30, 120, 139, 142, and so many others. Anyway, I just want to set that up because I think it's so interesting and helpful. Now, to the prayer. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. 
For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots at the roots of the mountains. And I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. And when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord. And they will stand forever. I want to identify two main themes that jump off the pages of this prayer. The hell of man's sinking and the hope of God's salvation Jonah uses some really powerful language to describe his experience and his sinking before God rescued him through the sea creature. And when he says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. Sheol is the word used to describe the realm of the dead. The realm of the dead. But that's not the only reference. Especially if you look down to verses 5 and 6. And 6, at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed up over me forever. And the word before that, weeds. And this language is really descriptive. These are all descriptors of the land of the dead. In other words, Jonah didn't actually cross over into death, but he was almost there. He was on death's doorsteps and he knew it. The weeds, the roots. The land, the bars, it's like the the gates of hell. Jonah just went through what we might call today a very near-death experience. A near-death experience. This I've thought a lot about this story over the last several years, and I've actually been saving this one for tonight. And I don't want I won't get to use it again for two or three years. So here's here's one of my favorite stories of all time. It's about a near-death experience. I I first heard this story on the radio few years ago through an interview and it's about a cave diver we've already done one cave diving illustration earlier this semester but here's another one cave diving i think is so intriguing i would never ever 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 join this community but it's an amazing little tight-knit community especially these like extreme cave divers they explore the world's most difficult waters together and one of these places is known as bushman's cave now bushman's cave is in the middle of the south african desert where there are no trees there's no water that no anything there's just this desert that kind of comes down into this bowl and in the bottom of this bowl is this cave system and just on the outside of the cave system is a mud puddle and they describe this mud puddle essentially as big enough for one person to get into But one person goes into this puddle and inside this puddle is a 900 foot kind of water pool that drops straight down. That's three football fields straight down. And it goes as wide as about two and a half football fields at the very top. And then it narrows in all the way down. It's like an upside down Eiffel Tower is how they describe it. Cave divers love this place. 
they go come from all over the world, but very few have been able to go in and really explore the depths of Bushman's Cave because it's really dangerous. The, the statistic at the time when I heard this was that there have been more people on the moon than in Bushman's Cave. So that's kind of the tight-knit community. All right, here's what happened. There's this one guy named Dion Dreyer. He was a man determined to reach the bottom. He wanted to be the first man to get to the bottom of Bushman's Cave. In 1994, he explored the cave with a team, and then something happened. They don't know exactly what happened, but he, began, he, he got stuck somewhere near the bottom in the crags of the depths, and he never came up. And so he passed away there at the bottom of Bushman's Cave, and they weren't able to retrieve his body until 2002. When a guy named Dave Shaw, Dave Shaw, I think is amazing. Dave Shaw was exploring Bushman's cave and he came across Dion Dreyer's wetsuit. All these years later, the wetsuit is still there, stuck in the crags. The suit was still intact and inside the suit were obviously Dreyer's bones. So he couldn't pull him up that day. And so he, he wanted to, he couldn't kind of pull him out, out, but he knew where he was now. And so he made it his life ambition to bring up the body of Dion Dreyer. So Dave Shaw began to train and train and train because you can't just do this, right? You've got to have a team. You've got to have all sorts of safety protocols in place. There's so much risk and danger. And so if you go down too quickly, you're going to pass out. In those depths, it's just disorienting darkness. You can't even see the light right in front of you. Flashlights don't really even work in that sort of darkness. So they latch on what they call a shot line. A shot line would be this kind of line that runs from the diver all the way up to the top. So they could pull him out or he could follow the line back up if he ran into any problems. So here's what happened. Dave slowly makes his way down to the bottom of Bushman's Cave. He gets 900 feet deep again for the second time. And he finds Dion's body and he begins cutting part of the suit where he was stuck. But something went wrong again and in his frantic cutting he punctured one of his own lights and then he got dizzy and he couldn't figure out where he was and he got tied up in his shot line and he got tied up to the body of Dion Dreyer I'm going to pause the story for a minute I know there he is Dave Shaw stuck Stuck 900 feet deep in Bushman's cave in the depths. I want you to look at verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I think it's a really interesting picture and a really helpful metaphor for us to begin thinking about something that's a little bit difficult to think about together. Have you ever experienced a moment of honest realization that you are completely stuck. That there's something going on in your life that you just can't get out of it. You feel completely held down. Maybe even you feel near death itself. This is where Jonah is in the middle of this prayer. He's just simply acknowledging that all of his running from God's good direction in his life has taken him to the depths where he is stuck and where he feels completely helpless. In reality, this is where what we call sin leads all of us. In, in any way that we are running from God, Jonah's sin had brought him to death's doorsteps. Paul picks this idea up in Ephesians 2 when he says we were all 
dead in our trespasses and sin. In other words, we're walking around and talking, living on earth, but we might be spiritually dead inside, standing on the edge of entering the land of the dead forever. That's the reality that Paul's painting here. And I know we don't like to talk about stuff like this. We don't like to talk about this idea of spiritual death and and sin. We don't want to think that our individual decisions to not love God in the way he calls us to, to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, or to not love our neighbor as ourselves. that we are stacking up a debt that we can't repay on our own. And that it actually might be killing us. We don't like talking about that, but that's what Scripture is saying. And so here's what I want to say. If you're a Christian, this is what Jesus has delivered you from, ultimately. But if we're honest, there's so many ways in which we still live like we're dead men and women. Rather than those who have been brought to life. We don't like to think that our sin really affects our lives and our experiences. But if we don't admit the areas where we feel stuck then we won't see the ways that we need to be delivered even now. And so here's what we actually do. We don't like to admit that we're stuck. And so we create numbing devices, all sorts of numbing devices in order to not feel the pain of sin and the pain of living in a fallen and broken world. I want to run through some, what numbing devices might look like for uh, for all of us in this room. Let me explain what it is. Psychologist and research professor at the University of Houston named Brene Brown. She's written a ton of books on this sort of stuff. And in one of her books, she says, Americans today are more debt-ridden, obese, medicated, and addicted than we've ever been before. She says we have to begin understanding why that's the case in order for us to ever address it. And in her theory, and I think she's right about this, is that we are constantly either desperate to feel something positive or desperate to stop feeling something negative. So either we want some sort of high or we want to make sure the lows completely disappear. And so because of our anxieties and our fears or our feeling out of control or incapable of trying to meet the ridiculous demands of our lives and our schedules or the trying to measure up to be smarter or prettier or more athletic or cooler or better or whatever, we just get exhausted. And then we... Try to find ways to take the edge off both the instability and the inadequacy that we constantly feel. Are you with me? And it works for a time. And then we go back to that thing. Because it doesn't work long enough. And then what happens is we can become addicted to all sorts of things or people. And so I want to kind of run the list. And some of this is uncomfortable, and I'll, I'll be honest about it. It's uncomfortable for me, too. Um, but I, I think it's helpful to identify where, you, where maybe you see yourself in this list. Some vices that you may turn to. And some things are bad things in and of themselves, and some things are good things that we turn into ultimate things, and they become bad things. So, some examples. There's the obvious things like substance abuse, right? Substance abuse. Drinking too much. Drinking in order to not feel something. Obviously, drugs fit in here as well, but let me add a word of caution. This is just a word of caution for those in in the room who may be uh, of legal age to drink um, and you feel like you have a a pretty mature relationship with alcohol. Um, Let me just add a word of caution. If you've ever said the, the phrase, I could really use a beer tonight or I need some wine 
or I need. When we start attaching that kind of words to substances, do you hear what that's saying about us? You're answering your own question. What is it that you're turning to to feel better? Alcohol can quickly become that thing. Now, it can be abused, certainly. But it's not just alcohol or drugs or smoking or whatever. We can numb ourselves with relationships, too. Uh, Relationships, good things that become ultimate things. Think about specifically relationships that become codependent. Where you have that person that you continually turn to over and over again to make your life feel valuable, to give meaning or purpose or hope in a way that really only Jesus can. But this person is who you turn to over and over again to make you feel better about you. This is why it hurts so terribly when that relationship is threatened or removed because you can become hooked on people. Whether that's a boyfriend or girlfriend situation, it could just be a really good friend that you become dependent upon or even a parent. It could be a positive relationship that you use and and abuse without knowing it in order to pretend that everything's okay because they're okay with you. Um, Especially when you add kind of the physical sexual relationship to the mix. You become deeply connected and even hooked on that person's presence. It can become a destructive form of numbing. Now, one that that may be obvious to you, but is is worth focusing on is also pornography. Pornography is a a huge self-medicating, self-numbing mechanism that has affected our modern world in a plethora of destructive ways. Went to a seminar last week um, that my friend Jason, who's with the NAVs, put on. Uh, for campus ministers on the campus. And we were just working through the the porn epidemic on college campuses uh, for guys and girls and many different statistics and all these sort of things. And and he had a really helpful illustration. He said what pornography has become through our smartphones is like an, it's like an alcoholic walking around with a magical flask that he could turn to at any point that could He could call on it to bring any sort of drink that he could ever desire, and it's right there available to him at all times. That's what this has become with pornography. The accessibility that you have, the secrecy that we have, the magical flask, it's right here in our pockets. And for Christians, pornography is a specifically destructive numbing device because it grows in secrecy. It grows in the quiet, in your dorm, in your bed, when nobody else is around. You feel lonely. There's always porn. You feel sad. There's always porn. You feel stressed. Porn may help. Or you feel completely bored, unmotivated. Well, there's porn. And and it has become... I can't overstate it. It's become the go-to numbing device for my generation down to yours and beyond for almost any negative feeling. And we have an entire society hooked on pornography. So it's not just a device, and oftentimes it becomes the device to deliver, but it doesn't deliver, and, and you and I know that. It destroys. It destroys integrity. It destroys relationships. It destroys marriages. It destroys ministry opportunities. 
It destroys real friendship. Some of you don't have good friends because you're so scared they're going to ask you hard questions. So there's porn. The thing is, it's, it's a device that's being used to cover up the deeper pain. Porn is not the problem. Porn has become a problem, but it's not the problem. There's something underneath that problem as it is for anything else. Numbing is really just a form of running in one way or the other. All right, let me name just a couple other things. There's so much more we we could add here. I want to be really careful with my words, but self-harming is also a form of numbing, isn't it? Whether that's over-medicating or under-medicating. I think eating disorders and, and cutting fits in here. But it's not necessarily all bad things that we use to numb ourselves. It's also good things that we overuse to numb ourselves, like eating. Eating, can, you know, certain foods can be the thing that you look to to take the edge off and feel better about yourself. Or exercise, you know, go one extreme to the other. You can't get through your day unless you think, I know where I can at least... So at some point, I'll be in the gym for four hours and it'll, it'll all be okay. Or you dedicate yourself to all of these programs and good things that become ultimate things. And it gets in the way of other things. And it's the thing you turn to to feel better about life. Or things like, you know, binging on Netflix or whatever, social media. These aren't all bad. I would add gaming. Um, gaming has actually become... Uh, more popularized in the Jones house, by the way. It's a side note here. Um, as a numbing device. Uh, it's actually been a really helpful settling device. So we got a, uh, an old, the old new NES system in our house, like the, the one you plug in your TV. Got that for Christmas. Santa Claus brought Daddy a little something. And it has been so fun uh, replaying like early Legend of Zelda and Punch-Out!, uh, Soda Popinski on Punch-Out is giving me all sorts of fits right now. <laughs> In fact, I want to just stop talking about this and just go play Soda Popinski. Anyway, the point is, it's not all, you, y'all hear me on this? It's not all bad things, but it's bad things that become ultimate things. The last one, if, if I haven't scratched where you're itching, let me name one more. How about perfectionism? Can perfectionism be a numbing device that we use in our lives? Uh, Of course it can. As long as I can look busy and feel busy and be busy and find new goals to achieve or people to impress or clubs to lead or societies to be inducted to. Or let me add religiously busy. If I can be involved in six campus ministries Three churches, post my journal entries on Instagram and bring up my mission trip every conversation. Then I'll feel better about myself. We can even use spiritual things to actually numb ourselves. Even our busyness can become a device in which we try to use to not feel pain. That's what we're getting at here. Numbing devices are the things we turn to to hide our hurt. The point is that we can identify with Jonah in his sinking. And we know that there are a thousand ways that we can choose to not feel it. But I want you to hear this. God wants you to see what you're trying to not feel. 
He wants you to see where you feel stuck. Acknowledge where you are hurt. Realize the depth that you're in so that so that you will see that light has shined into that darkness. Because unless we see the darkness that we're all sinking toward, we will never appreciate and receive the light that's come to the rescue. Jonah puts it so well when he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That is an amazing verse. Write that verse down. Memorize it. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What is he saying? He's saying that if we continue in our idol worship of anything that is other than God, we will miss our rescuer. We will be like a man on an abandoned island who is surviving off the island for so long, who has given up that there's a better life for him. And he's missed the one rescue plane that flew over looking for him. Or better yet, he's dug into the island and and barricaded himself underneath the ground so that he would never be able to see the rescuer. That's what we do with the various numbing devices. So I don't want you to miss your rescuer. You need to know along with Jonah that hope has come for you. At the end of verse 6, Jonah confesses, Yet... You brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. And then at the very end, he makes that great statement where he says salvation belongs to the Lord. It's amazing. How does God rescue Jonah ultimately? How does God give Jonah life? It is through death. He stared down hell before he saw heaven. He knocked on death's door before life came calling. He was in the darkness when the light finally broke through. There's this old creed that many churches have used throughout the centuries. A statement, I think it's from the 4th century, that even many different denominations have agreed on, of all things, called the Apostles' Creed. And maybe you grew up in a church where you recited the Apostles' Creed on a regular basis. I didn't grow up in a tradition that that used it, but I have been in a denomination that we say it every now and then in in our church. And there's this phrase, if you ever hear the Apostles' Creed or say it in church, where you're kind of like going along with it and you're like, what does that mean? We're going to talk about that phrase. It's when you're talking about Jesus. And he says, and you say in the Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. And you're like, what? What? He, he descended into hell. Let's talk about that phrase for a minute from the Apostles Creed. Why does it say that he descended into hell? Did Jesus literally go to hell for those three days? Well, hell is in short is the place where God isn't. It is the forsakenness of God. When Jesus was on the cross, what was his prayer? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The hell that Jesus experienced was the absence of God in his death. In this moment on the cross, and we don't know exactly what happens in that time between Jesus' death and his resurrection. But what he says 
is that he is forsaken by God. Why? Why would God allow his one and only son to experience that sort of hell? Well, we know it's not because God doesn't love him. He makes that very clear. This is my beloved son whom I love. But it is because God does love you. God the Father forsakes God the Son on the cross so that you would never be forsaken by God. Paul puts it another way when he says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me define it with another old catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism, which comes from the 1500s, answers the question. Their question 44 asks the question, why is it added then he descended into hell? And the answer that they give is, this is so good, listen. So that in my greatest temptations, I may be assured that Christ, my Lord, by his inexpressible anguish, pains and terrors, which he suffered in his soul on the cross and before has redeemed me from the anguish and torment of hell. In other words, Jesus knew God's forsakenness so that you and I would never have to. Even if you experience hell on earth, and let me just say, I know many of you have. Can I acknowledge that? Many of you have been through some of the worst things that life could ever throw at someone. And I know many of your stories. Even if you experience hell on earth, you will never experience it without God being present with you. He will never forsake you if you are in Christ. In this life or the life to come, this is why Jesus came into the world, friends. To dive into the depths in order to bring you and me out of the depths. Even to deliver you from the destructive devices that you turn to to deliver you when they don't deliver you. Does that make sense? Our numbing devices are covering some other pain. He delivers us from the numbing devices that are trying to cover the pain. He he wipes the whole thing. And he delivers us. He knows your sin and mine. He knows your devices to not fill. He knows your despair and your shame and your hiding and all of your running. And he comes into this world and he ties his life to yours in order to bring you up. Can I tell you how the Bushman's Cave story ends? The team that Dave Shaw was diving with when he went to bring up Dion Dreyer's body, couldn't go deep enough to rescue Dave. Only he could go that deep. He was the only one trained to go into those depths. But even he couldn't unattach himself from Dion's body before it was too late. His, labor, his breathing became labored. And soon it stopped. Dave Shaw had attached himself to Dion Dreyer's lifeless body in hopes to bring him up, and he died in the process. But 
That's not actually the end of the story. The next day, they were able to bring up Dave's body. And also something else. One of the divers on the team said in this interview, and this is a quote, he said, when Dave's body had come up, hanging underneath his body, cocooned in the line that Dave originally had laid, was Dion Dreyer's body too. And he said, so Dave actually achieved what he set out to do. Amazing. His life mission was to bring up the body of this man who was stuck at the bottom of the cave, and he did it. But it took his death to do it. In that very passage in Ephesians, when Paul says, you were once dead in your trespasses and sin, he goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him. And seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you can identify with any of the sinking that we've described tonight, you need to know that there is deeper grace for you. Because God has come to bring you out of the pit. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has entered into your story, into the cave, into the depths, into your drama to bring up your body with his. We can't rescue ourselves. You can't do it. Some of you have tried over and over again to just stop. You can't do it. We can't bring ourselves out of these depths. Only God can. I I love this quote from Michael Horton. This book I'm reading through called Putting Amazing Back into Grace. And he says, God is out of our reach, but we are never out of his. Thank good. God is out of our reach but we are never out of his. Let me end. I know I'm going a little bit over what I normally do tonight. I want to end with three very specific applications. uh, What this, what this reality can bring into your life. If you were in Christ last week, I applied this text to interpersonal relationships and talked about the ways that this passage can affect the way we relate to other people. Now I just simply want to turn it to kind of the, the vertical relationship with God. How does this affect the way that we respond to God? One, I would say humility, right? Maybe this obvious. If we believe that we cannot rescue ourselves from death, that God came down to rescue you, it should should produce in our lives tremendous humility. I've said it before. um, Reformed Christians, I think, should be the most humble of all Christians on earth. Because it's in our theology that we love only because we know we have been loved. There's nothing we could do. Unless God were the one to open our hearts. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ Jesus. And Jonathan Edwards has this great quote where he says, the only thing that you and I contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That should produce real humility in our lives as we turn to the Lord. And second, that humility should lead them to confession. Confession. When was the last time you named some of these things to the Lord? You were honest with him about not just what you're struggling with and not just your busyness in school, but maybe what you're trying to hide with your busyness. Not just that you looked at porn again, but why you looked at porn again. What was it that that put you there? What were you looking for that only God can deliver? 
And to know that as we confess, we really do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, one who's been tempted in every way yet was without sin. And we know that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. We have an advocate with the Father, namely Jesus Christ. And to lean into the gospel on a daily basis. We don't need numbing devices. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. And to be able to confess that can begin to bring real freedom. And the third thing is worship. I don't know if you notice how many times Jonah named the temple. He just kept throwing it out there. And I'm going to go to the temple. It's on his heart that he wants to be eventually with God's people again in the temple to worship. And I think the truth that when God delivers us from the dead, it it leads to worship. It really does. Rescued people celebrate their deliverance. You think of folks who've been cured from cancer. Those who were saved from a near-death experience. People who knew bondage and they found freedom. I think of alcoholics who found years of sobriety or drug addicts who found years of reprieve from their addiction. Rescued people celebrate. Do we as Christians properly celebrate our deliverance from death itself? Do we celebrate the one who's rescued us? Now, I don't just mean this as a worship style necessarily. I don't mean it as, uh, you know, what you're doing in your devotional life. I mean it in, in, in the full orb way. Does your life reflect, God, you have rescued me. I want, to, I want to live for you. I want to study for you. I want to have relationships that honor you. I want to fight against these struggles in my life because you've delivered me. Does it, do we celebrate the deliverance in the way that we respond to him in worship? I think about the old spirituals. Part of what makes this, the old spirituals so powerful is that they were literally born out of slavery. Written by Christians who understood that only God could rescue them from their awful conditions. And so often, um, slaves had to gather in secret. Christian slaves had to gather in secret because it was illegal, especially in the state of South Carolina, if you study our history. It was illegal for slaves to congregate together without a white person being present, essentially. And so worship, in many cases, began in secret. But they were writing. They were writing hymns. They were writing songs and they were passing it down and singing together lyrics that they can memorize And part of what makes spiritual so powerful is they understood that only God could rescue them from their bondage, both in the temporal and the eternal. Listen, I just end with this. If you're a believer and you understand that you've been rescued, does your worship life reflect it? I'm asking that for me, too. Does our worship reflect it? If you are in the depths, friends, I want you to look up. Because your rescuer has come. He's come to set you free, to give you life. Look to him. Would you pray with me?